so important what was said and the testimony and sung. You know what a lesser thing is? It doesn't mean it's not important, but comparatively, it's lesser. You know the lesser thing that Hannah had to let go of? Did you hear it? After her grandmother's death? That she completely understood what God was doing. That was an important thing, but it was a lesser thing. She didn't get to completely understand what God is doing. Nobody gets to completely understand what God is doing. Just God gets to understand that. And you can hope for understanding, and sometimes he provides understanding, but trust in him is greater than your understanding. It's a lesser thing. And that's what Jonah has to learn as well here. We're in Jonah chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in front of you. It'd be helpful to follow along just to read these nine verses of Jonah's prayer. It's on page 774 if you're losing a, using a blue pew Bible. And once you find that, then just mark that and turn back and however you mark Psalm 16 and Psalm 3. We're going to have a reference to that, and that's left of Jonah. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, Psalm 3, Psalm 16, I'll reference that at some point. But let's stand together and read this prayer of Jonah. We'll begin in chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then, then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. You may be seated. Let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word. There's a famous painting by Johannes Vermeer, Johannes Vermeer, Dutch painter in the 1600s. And his most famous painting was titled The Girl with the Pearl Earring. Some of you may be familiar with it. Vermeer lived in the Netherlands in the 1600s. And this painting was known as the Mona Lisa of the North. And probably you've seen it, even though it might not come to your mind. 
pretty famous painting. It's really simple. It's a very dark background, and you see uh, the, the face of a young girl, her shoulders, and she's turning over her left shoulder to like look back towards the artist, and she has her mouth a little bit open like she might be saying something. She's got a, a golden sort of dress on. She's got a bright blue turban in her hair. And she has one big pearl earring hanging from her left earlobe. So she's called the girl with the pearl earring. Because of the fame of the painting, it's been studied at length. And not long ago, they had this specialized sort of x-ray camera that spent 88 hours continuously examining the painting. Uh, I wouldn't want a camera to spend 88 hours examining my life with that kind of detail, but it did, and it came out with a 100 billion pixel copy of the painting. And of course, when you study the painting with that kind of detail, you learn quite a bit about Vermeer, quite a bit about his technique as an artist, and you should look it up. It's, you could easily find it on Google. You can't find it on Google in here right now, but you can find it on Google later. As we examine the details of Jonah's prayer, we're going to see that it has similarities to Vermeer's painting. Similarities in that there are things on the surface you can see. It's a young girl with a pearl earring. There's certain things you can see on the surface, but then just like when you examine Vermeer's painting, there were things underneath the surface that influenced what you saw, but you didn't necessarily see it on the surface. And that's the case here with Jonah's prayer. If you're uh, not here last week, we started with Jonah chapter 1. And as I mentioned, whenever you're fleeing from the presence of God, you're going where? You're going down. And we saw this. Jonah got a call to arise and go, and he did arise and go. He just went in the opposite direction. Some of us are familiar with that. And the storyteller wants you to know that he's going down. He's going down to Joppa to get on the ship. He gets on the ship, and he goes down in the ship. And now in chapter 2, he's really going down. He's going down all the way to the bottom of the earth, riding in the belly of a great fish. And one commentator says this, when we reject and disobey God, as Jonah did, it takes radical treatment to be remedied. When you just say, hey, you know what, God, I hear what you're saying, I'm going to go in the opposite direction. All of us are free to choose that. But just like the commentator said, if you're going to go radically in the opposite direction, sometimes the remedy is radical. Listen to what he says. It was, not until Jonah was, it was not until Jonah was all the way down, finally stripped of his own buoyant self-sufficiency. See, he thought, he thought what was keeping him in life was, I'm in control, I, I, I've got things down, I'm okay. Only when he was stripped by, by, from his buoyant self-sufficiency was, he, was deliverance possible. So going down for Jonah was actually the way up. Familiar verses with Jesus, Matthew 10. Whoever finds his life will lose it. If you try to stay on the surface of life and try to grab for life in any way you choose, 
you're going to end up losing life. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jonah was on the run. He's trying to find life apart from God, and it took this hellish ride down to the bottom of the ocean in order for him to find it. It's a familiar story. Many of us have been on this ride before. To just say, I don't want to go in this direction, and we find ourselves in a deep, dark place. Adoniram Judson was one of America's first missionaries, very famous missionary, took a trip to India and ended up landing in the country next to it called Burma, today Myanmar. And Judson was just like Jonah. He first was on the run from God. Judson grew up in a household where his dad was a preacher. He had made a commitment to Christ, teenager, just like Hannah. And then at 18, he decides to go to Providence College. And he meets a guy there named Jacob Eames. Jacob Eames becomes his friend. And Jacob Eames is an atheist. And Jacob Eames ends up befriending Judson, and they have all kinds of conversations as you might imagine in college. And eventually, Jacob Eames sort of wears God out of Judson's life. And Judson thinks Jacob's right. There is no God. So I'm just going to live my life in a totally different direction. And Jacob or Judson comes home to his parents, much to their horror, and says, Hey, you know what, Mom and Dad? I'm not a Christian. And now I'm going to go to New York City, as everyone does, trying to find themselves. I'm going to go to New York City. I'm going to join the theater. And that's what Judson does. He's in a traveling group of actors at some point, and he stops at a village inn outside of New York City, comes to the innkeeper late at night, and the innkeeper informs him he just has one room open. And Judson takes it, of course, but he says, hey, there's a man next to you. You're going to share a wall with a man who is really critically ill. And I'm just telling you now, he might be some disturbance during your night's rest. And Judson said, well, I have no place else to go. I'll take the room. I'll take my chances. And all night, Judson was kept awake by the sounds of groaning despair from a dying man. This man who's wrestling against death. And God used that to keep Judson up all night and ask him, hey, where are you going after your death? So Judson's in this dark room. He can't sleep. He hears these constant groans. Finally, dawn breaks. He gets up. He goes down to the innkeeper. He's paying his price. And he asks the innkeeper, what happened to the man next door? Not surprisingly, the innkeeper said, well, he died overnight. And Judson, on his way out of the door, says, well, do you know who he was? Oh, yes, the innkeeper said. He was a young man from the College of Providence named Jacob Eames. Hmm. Right then, Judson started praying. He lived through this dark night of the soul, so to speak. He said that it felt like the world had dropped underneath from underneath me. I began to wonder what was going to happen to my own self? And eventually, Judson began to pray, and that prayer led him back to Jesus, and then led him on a ship to Burma to teach thousands, now millions of people, about Jesus. So for Judson and Jonah, the way up was first going to require the way down. 
And for many of you all, for me, there's a graciousness we pray for God's hand. But some of us, to travel up, we have to first let go of something. It might be like Hannah, I have to let go of feeling like I'm in charge or feeling like I need to know everything. I've got to make sure God clears it with me before he takes a grandmother away so I can believe in him. I mean, there's a sense of all that we have. There may be other things you're running away from God from, but the way up is going to be the way down. For, for Jonah, my guess is he felt like he was being buried, but you and I know he was being planted by the Lord. That ever happened to you? You look back and say, I thought that that moment, that thing, that time, that was burying me. But that turned out to be the most life-giving moment for me. When I was 23 years old and I was living in a 60 by 10 foot trailer down in Myrtle Beach, my mother was dying and I was being buried. That's what it felt like. It felt like my soul was being buried. And I had that same feeling Hannah had of just, I just hated the way this was working out. And then I started moving that hate towards God. And it felt like I was being buried. But I can look back, back now and say, hey, God was planting me. The planting required me dying to myself. Me letting go of things, even people that were important. But that was the moment something began to grow because I began to pray. Pray in a different way than I had prayed before. So verse 2, Jonah begins to pray. No surprise. He's been swallowed. He's been three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, and he begins to pray to the Lord. And before we examine Jonah's prayer, I want you to see something very important, something you might not see on the surface. One discovery in Vermeer's painting from the camera was that Vermeer had used a painting technique called underpainting. And what that simply means is that you take a white canvas and you paint the canvas in some way that the tone of that paint is going to bleed through the paint that you're going to put on top of the paint. Does that make sense? So he wants a dark background. He wants some shadows on the girl's shoulders. So he paints browns and greens and blacks all over the canvas, except for this one middle spot where her face is going to be in the pearl earring. And he underpaints that with white. So that when he ends up with his painting, the colors that are behind the colors bleed through. They give tone. They give texture to what's on the surface. Now, I want us to listen carefully because this is maybe the most important point here for some of us. It's certainly the most important tool that we can use in our walk with the Lord. Jonah's underpainting, listen, was the Bible. For all of Jonah's faults, what he had underpainted his life was with up until this point was God's word. And we know that because when you read the prayer, it's all copy and paste from the Psalms. And I'll show you that in a minute. So what was so critical for Jonah, what was part of the saving process, is he had already underpainted his life with God's Word. So when he got to the very bottom, when nothing was working, he could go to the underpainting and say, would this influence my soul? Would this influence my life? I want to just peel back a couple of layers. Verse 2, I called out. Psalm 20, 120, the first song in the Songs of Ascent. 
which you should know, be familiar with. Psalm 20 says, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Same thing what Jonah is talking about in verse 2. I called out of the belly of Sheol, this place of the dead, Psalm 86. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Psalm 2, you heard, or verse 2, you heard my voice. Psalm 116, let's just look at these verses together. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. You can just hear these psalms influencing Jonah's, Jonah's writings. Because he inclined to hear me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death have encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord, O oh God, I pray, deliver my soul. This, see, you see the underpainting here? This is so powerful that when Jonah doesn't have any more words to give, he can't say anything, he goes to God's word. And that's exactly what I'm trying to help us do before we look at this prayer is would you please underpaint your life with God's word. Because you're going to get to dark places and you're just going to run out of words. You're not going to run out of emotions or feelings, but you're going to run out of ways to express it. And I can tell you, when you get to that dark place and you can tell me the same story, Instagram doesn't help at that point. A funny little meme at that point isn't going to cut it. You're going to have to have something very solid and again, for all of Jonah's faults, he had this underpainting. Parents, underpaint your kid's life with God's word. So that when they're away from you, they can say, I remember when my mom said, I remember when my dad said, I, I saw them building that in so that when you're not there, they have this underpainting that's never going to leave. So I got so excited about this, I thought, okay, we're going to do a challenge here. We're going to do a challenge. And the challenge is going to start in January. And I don't know exactly how it's going to work out right now. I don't have the details, but I've got four or five weeks to get there. But we're going to, I'm just going to ask you to read through the Psalms in 2024 with me. I mean, it's 150 of them, so you can easily do it in one year. If you want to, you know, double up and go twice in a year, that would be great. And we'll have some devotional materials and boxes you can check because some of us like that. I, I did that one. But I want it to somehow become part of the, the fabric of your life so, so that when you're 22 and you're in a dark space or you're 17 and you're dark, wasn't that so beautiful? I'm 17. I was in a dark place and on my phone came what? God's Word. God's word. And so before we look at the details here, understand the underpainting that's happening here. That might be the most important part. That when it gets dark for Jonah, this underpaint bleeds through the bright white light of hope. What Jonah learns, and we don't have time for all that he learns here in the bottom of a fish. First of all, he learns God's in charge. This is really the first step to coming out. It's just to say, you know what, God, you're in charge. This is a simple thing to say, but just a very hard thing to let go of. 
Look at verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. Now hold on. Back in chapter 1, verse 15, it sure looked like the sailors cast him over. But what is Jonah realizing? That Just like we said in Ruth. Remember, Ruth has a split screen. Ruth is acting. Boaz is acting. But everybody knows there's a split screen. God's acting at the same time. And Jonah knows this. Yes, he's there because of his, his own disobedience. Yes, he's there because the sailors threw him over there. Yes, he's there because God has hurled him into the sea. You understand that, that while I'm working, God is working at the same time. I'm working the best I can for you to understand Jonah chapter 2. But I know God is at work right now. And his work is much more powerful and impacting than my work. So he learns that God is in charge. Don't you think Adoniram Judson left the village in thinking God's in charge? Oh, yes, he did. God is in charge. Sinclair Ferguson says this, few principles are more important in the Christian life than the practical recognition of the sovereignty of God and God's gracious determination to draw us near to himself. I've just got to trust that God is in charge and in a gracious way he's drawing, my, drawing me to himself, whatever the cost, Ferguson goes on, when God's purpose, purpose involves affliction and suffering, which it will, the knowledge that he's in charge is the only thing that can prevent us from craven fear or despair. You, some of you know this. The only thing that kept any hope alive was that God was in charge. When someone you love dies, you trust God's in charge, not you. He trusted that God was in charge, maybe for the first time for Jonah. God's in charge when you run away from God. God is in charge when you run away from God. God is in charge when you are in the greatest storm of your life. God's in charge when people throw you overboard. God's in charge when you're disobedient and make poor decisions and you're swallowed by them. And thank God... When you take your last breath, if you've trusted in Jesus, God will be in charge. When a day comes that my body goes into the ground, it won't be a burial. It'll be a planting. Why? God's in charge. Second thing, or another thing, Jonah comes to grip with is his desperate need for grace he was a religious man but there was some some distance between him and his personal need for God's grace I mean he understood the need for God's grace but there's something that was distant in him verse 2 I called out from my distress and that you, you just hear him learning that he needs God's grace I called out from my, my from my distress comma, and he answered me. Verse 5 and 6, just notice the, the, the language here. The waters closed in over me. They were taking my life deep, surrounding me. Weeds are wrapped around my head. It's like the roots of the mountain are pulling me down. And then this final line, final line whose bars closed upon me forever. And what does it say after forever? Comma. 
church. Glad there's a comma there. Comma, yet you brought me up from the life. You're, you're the one. You have hurled me into the sea, and yet you've been gracious enough to keep me alive. I can't believe it. And then in verse 7 is a key to Jonah's recovery. When Jonah recalls the temple, it's kind of an unusual phrase for us. But what Jonah is remembering when he remembers the temple is he's remembering how God operates. This is so important. He looks back at the temple, and maybe for the first time, he comes to terms with how God really operates. And he looks to the temple. And Jonah looks to himself first and says, Hey, I've been on the run, I've been disobedient. I deserve to be with the dead. I deserve for the bars to close over my soul. But I, I look to the temple, and what I realize that the biggest problem in my life is not the Ninevites, it's me. And until that gets dealt with, I can't deal with anything else correctly. He looks to the temple. And this is what Jonah knows as a man of God, that sin and disobedience are taken seriously at the temple. And in the place where you come and just pray and God says, okay, I forget. No, sin is taken seriously. Why, is sin, why do you know sin is taken seriously at the temple? Because how do you get into God's presence? A blood sacrifice. And everybody comes with a blood sacrifice. So he knows in order to get into the presence of God, there's got to be a payment, a blood sacrifice. But what does Jonah realize? The sinner is not the one who sacrificed. There's a substitute. The sinner is not the person who sacrificed in the temple. There's a substitute. There's a sheep. There's a goat. There's a lamb. How do you and I get into the presence of God? Through a substitute. We can't come on our own. There's got to be somebody in between. There's got to be some substitute for us. And Jonah's realizing something we, we see clearly. He only saw a shadow of. And Paul says it so well in Romans 5 and 6. For the wages of sin is death. This sounds like Jonah. But is there a period there? No, there's a comma. Comma. Comma, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. Why we were still sinners, what does it say? Christ died for us. Amen. That's the gospel. That is the gospel. That's our hope. Why we were in distress, why we were in the belly of the whale, Christ died for us. In Jesus, something so much greater than Jonah has arrived. He's the substitute. It's worth remembering that Jonah saw himself correctly for the first time in this dark place long after he'd been serving the Lord. This man is a prophet. This man had made countless trips to the temple. But he never somehow saw the sacrifice needed for himself. And I wonder if there might be a Jonah here. I mean, you come, you know God's grace is necessary because the person you're sitting next to sure needs it. But somehow, I mean, you don't see yourself as perfect, but like the real sacrifices, mm, he needs that. 
You see that you somehow distance yourself. You're, you, you, you give money and you serve and you, you even pray for people, but somehow everyone else really needs the grace of God and you just need like a teaspoon or something. No, it's not, that's not the way it is. Jonah was the person who ended up being farthest away from the Lord, yet he looked like he was cl- the closest one. So I might want to talk to myself here starting. You can be a preacher and think you're preaching the need for the grace of God and never know that you need it yourself. Possible. Thankfully, Jonah has this dark experience that ends up being a, not a burial, but a planting. Jonah's real deliverance came while he was inside the fish. We know this. Jonah was released from this, soft, this false belief of self-salvation. He was released from looking down on others. And he concluded his prayer with this great shout, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation. The salvation of the sailors, the salvation of the Ninevites, and the salvation of his own soul. If anyone is saved, if someone is saved, it's entirely of God's doing. Whether it's the lost Ninevites or the sailors or himself, you're never saved partly by the Lord and partly by yourself. No, salvation belongs completely to the Lord. You and I, we cannot save ourselves. So John, Jonah hears the gospel and then receives the gospel in his distress. And that's a planting that begins to grow and he gets spit out and then he goes on a missionary trip. Unlike anything we've probably ever seen except for maybe Adoniram Judson in Burma, which we'll talk about next week. You and I all sit here this morning, and what I see is beautiful. I think you're beautiful. But I only see the surface. God has an x-ray machine. He knows the people that are on the run. He knows the people who feel like they need to be in control. And as long as God informs them of what's going on and they give the okay, then they're good with that. He knows the sailors who pray to false gods and need a savior. He knows the Ninevites. He knows you. He knows me. He sees it all. And I wonder if any of us are like Jonah here. We're, we're headed towards rock bottom. Maybe we're at rock bottom. Tried to find life in this world. It just doesn't deliver in the way you'd hoped. You've made something more important than God. Maybe you've been in church your whole life. You've served God. She never really thought of grace being something you needed personally. Let's, let's allow Jonah's trip down to help soften your trip down. I was talking to a friend on the way in. They said, hey, afterwards we're going to have lunch and talk about your sermon. I was like, okay, good. And here's what I would say then. 
How is God using Jonah's ride to rock bottom to show you something about you which needs to be let go of? You got that? How is Jonah's ride to rock bottom showing you, showing me, hey, Paul, let's let go of that. Just let me be in control. I'll plant you and grow you in the ways that I want, but you got to let go. You got to turn. Here's the great thing about Jonah his rescue began with just a simple prayer. He didn't have to get himself all cleaned up. You can't clean yourself up in the, in the belly of a fish. Didn't smell very good. Didn't look too good, but he could pray. That can be the starting point, especially if you're rock bottom. Let's pray together. Lord, some of us here today are at rock bottom or feels like we're going down. All of us here will take that ride. Would you help us to not be so proud to not pray? But to see ourselves finally like Jonah saw himself, he's personally need of amazing grace. That wouldn't, the kind of grace that doesn't just save a sinner, it saves a religious sinner. Lord, I pray for your gentle, gracious hand on our ride to rock bottom. Much of it of our own because of our own disobedience. But we trust, we trust in you, Lord. That you are a God of resurrecting lives, first your son, yourself, and ours as well. That there's hope even at rock bottom. Give us strength to pray. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.